Today we're hopping back in our series, Grow On, that we've been uh, in since Easter. And this is going to take us through Pentecost, which, believe it or not, is in two weeks. And you can tell because the temperatures are warming up outside. But um, we've been talking about this idea of spiritual growth. And how Jesus, Jesus knew that he, even after the resurrection, he wasn't going to be remaining with the disciples. He wasn't going to be remaining physically on earth. So he basically took them along over this, these three years of ministry, training them up, but getting ready to deploy them. To deploy them for ministry without him. And part of that was that they would need to grow up. That they couldn't just rely on him to provide everything that they would need, but that they were being trained to go up and to go out just as Je- the, to, do, to do the things that Jesus had been doing. And so there's this turning point, though, that we see in Luke's gospel in chapter 9 that we've been kind of unpacking a little bit. I'm talking about this turn that Jesus makes in his ministry, and this is before the cross, before the resurrection, um, a turn that he makes towards Jerusalem, This is entering into Jerusalem, getting ready to enter into Jerusalem. And he makes that turn, but it's also a turning point for his followers, for those who are following along with him. And it was a turning point enabling them to grow. Well, I'm going to start off with, uh, we're going to have a little bit of fun this morning, um, starting off with a little bit of a question as we get into the message today. Um, I want to ask you, do you lose things easily? Yeah, got some hand, very proud people in the back there. So yeah, do you lose things easily? Well, I think most of us, yeah, we have lost quite a few things. Um, And there's many common things that people lose. And instead of kind of giving you a list, I thought it would be fun to do a little family feud style to name things, name something that people often lose. And the way we're going to do this is I think we're going to... Becca, if you can uh, look online for the online folks, you guys are playing too. We're going to group you. We're going to have the two sides here. You're going to be two families. We have one family here at Table Life Church, but we're going to be two families just for today. So Becca, if you could plop the online folks, they're going to be a part of this family over here. So I'm going to ask the question. I'm going to have one person or uh, whoever wants to shout out, what is something that people often lose? Okay, keys. Okay. People over here, that's family number on my side, one and two. Here we go. Keys. Ding, ding, ding. 20. That is the top answer. Out of 100 people surveyed, 20 said their keys. So somebody keeps score here. I'm not. Um, Okay. Next one. What, what, what? What? Okay. That still stays in our family here. So you got keys. So what is something? Don't put that... Okay, spoiler alert. What is something that people often lose? Wallet. Money or wallet, that is also up there as well. Believe it or not. Okay, something else that someone also may lose. Glasses. Glasses are, uh, I guess, third place there in 15 points. Okay, there we just screwed up our little game, but that's okay. Okay, uh, so what's another thing that people often lose? Your mind. Yes, that was the last answer. Good job, Dave, over there. What's something else that people? Arguments with your wife. That's, that's a winner right there. Thank you. Thank you, Alan Cratch. Thank you. 
Um, okay, uh, let's see. Someone said shoes. Yeah, that was, 10 people said that. Um, did somebody say eyeglasses? Eyeglasses, yeah, that's common. They're on the top of your head, right? I mean, most of the time. Or, or around, uh, so that was like 15. Um, there's one thing that people did miss. Phone, okay, they didn't put some, yeah, that, I'm surprised that's not on there. Maybe this was like 1990 answers. <laughs> Who knows? Uh, your weight, people lose weight. Ah, but I like Alan's answer a lot better. So, so think for a second, think about something that you often lose. Maybe it was one of those things, maybe it was something else. Um, but, but I want you to hold on to that, that feeling, but we're going we're gonna to come back to that as we look in the scripture today. So um, if you remember two weeks ago, we talked about how Jesus was challenging his disciples at that point, sending out the 70, uh, 72 on their mission to go out, to begin to engage others. We talked about that scary word evangelism and how we do it wrong as Christians and we wind up turning people away, but how it's mainly sharing your story, being building relationships with people, being authentic about how you are. But kind of capping off that, there's a really reasonable question to ask that I get a lot from people. And that question is, to ask why. Why? Why should we be doing that? Why should we, uh, those of us who are following Christ, those of us in the church, why should we care so much about other people? Is it because we want to be a big church? We want to grow to be a 300, 500, 1,000 people is because more people means more money for the church. Maybe you grew up in a tradition that, that was talked about a lot. But, but kind of piggybacking off of that, another good question is, why should we care about people in the community who are not connected to church or to Jesus? Why should we care? And that's, a, I think, a legitimate question. So today we're going to talk about why this matters. And this was kind of a lesson for the disciples, for those following Jesus. We're going to talk about why this matters and how this is a significant step in spiritual growth. See, once, once you can get this, this is a game changer in our relationship with Christ and how we see him work in our lives. Well, the setting for this story today takes place on the road. So Jesus was traveling to Jerusalem, and we said he sent out, he sent them to the towns and villages that where he was getting ready to go, and he sends these followers out ahead of him, but then eventually, eventually they come back. They come back together. And so Jesus, though, had this habit that wherever he went, everywhere he went, he spent more time with sinners and tax collectors than religious people. It was a habit of Jesus. He spent more time with sinners and tax collectors than he did with the Pharisees, who were considered the kind of religious elite. And so the story starts out with a dispute that became very typical in Jesus's ministry. It's repeated kind of several times here. So we're going to look at Luke chapter 15, one, starting off with verses 1 to 2. This is also printed in your uh, programs and your worship guides. If you want to follow along, take notes, do whatever. So Luke tells us, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathered around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Imagine that, right? The Pharisees are complaining Imagine that for 2,000 years, people have been complaining about one another. Who knew? But because of, because of what Jesus is doing, he's eating with them, right? He's eating with those people. Like, like if you're really following God, you really shouldn't be like doing, hanging out with them. Uh, we might ask though, well, 
but you know, why is that such a big deal? You know, maybe it looks bad on your reputation. Uh, well, it's because who you hang out with, especially in this time, who you hang out with says something about you. Says something about you. People begin to think things. That's why like a Steelers fan will never be caught dead at an Eagles party, right? Like, right, you, Jeff, is that right? Kind of, kind of, sort of, yeah, right? But on the same hand, our Eagles friends, like you would never even step foot near like a tailgate that's happening for the Steelers. Like you don't want to be associated with them, right? Not with, with them. But if you think that matters enough now, uh, even back then, it was especially important because as when you were eating with someone, when you were sharing food with someone, that expressed that you had a relationship with that person. That the rules said that Jews were not supposed to eat with non-Jews, and especially people that were kind of uh, signed off, that are put away, that are, say, like, you know, they're, they're kind of dirty and scummy, and they're, they're not following God. And, but Jesus is hanging out with them. He breaks their expectations. And you imagine that's when the complaints start coming about how much time, how much time are you spending with those people, Jesus? You should be spending it with those of us that are following God, that are doing the right thing, that are living the right way. And that's what the Pharisees are feeling at this point. And I want you to, for a minute, just to put yourself in their shoes. Put yourself in their shoes, because these are not bad people. A lot of times the Pharisees in Scripture get a really bad rap, but these are reasonable people. They're very, very committed to God. They, they worship. They, they did what they were supposed to do. They, they sacrificed for God. They spent time together reading scripture, knowing scripture. They spent in Bible study, in prayer. They went to the temple. They gave up a lot. These were people who were trying their best to follow God. But it made sense for them to ask Jesus, though, what's the deal? We're doing all the right things, Jesus. What about us? And you know what Jesus' response is? He responds with stories. Interesting, huh? Instead of getting into a point-to-point battle, he responds with stories known as parables. And it sounds simple, but it's really not so simple. And the first story that he shares is what's known as the parable or the story of the shepherd and the lost sheep. And he says this, starting in verse three. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. And then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. So those of you who have had uh, children in school, maybe grandkids, nieces, nephews, maybe you remember yourself being at school, what's the place you go when your kid has left their jacket on the playground? What's that place called? The lost and found, the lost and found. You check the lost and found table. And I was really kind of thinking about this. Um, If you think about it, the lost and found table can't really be both, right? It can't be both. It should really be called the lost table because if they are found, they shouldn't be on the table. But then I thought about it a little bit more because on the flip side, 
if they were lost, they wouldn't be here. They're right here. They're on a table. So somebody found them. That means it should be called the found table. So which is it? Lost and found. I think somebody just probably couldn't make up their mind. <sighs> so looking at the scripture, though, so that kind of confusion, that, that's kind of the, what was the people around Jesus were confused about when they would have heard this story. The question of, well, what is it? Who, who are we? Jesus is mixing things up here. It's not so easy, the answer there. Who are we? When Jesus was telling parables, he was telling them to people so that they would be able to connect maybe with, with a character, a person in the story, and be able to reflect on that. And if you were a first century person, just even the image of a shepherd would be a really, really big deal and a really, really radical thing. It would have been radical because it was an image that nobody really, really wanted at the time. But what was interesting is that in, all throughout scripture, God is portrayed as a shepherd. God is portrayed as a shepherd. And actually, the earliest art depictions of Jesus about 100 years after Jesus' resurrection depict Jesus as a shepherd. And it's a really, really strange thing because most of the people would not choose that image to depict anyone, let alone God. They were a despised group of people. Shepherds, they were the lowest of the low. A rabbinical source at the time talks about how these, these people who were shepherds were in the same category as gamblers, sailors, and tax collectors. They were the lowest of the low, right? They're the people that you don't want to hang. They're dirty. And, and so imagine if you were one of those, though, in the story, a shepherd, if you were one of those disregarded people and one of your livelihood was missing, what would you do? What would you do if you were in the place of the shepherd? See, the shepherds, they were hirelings. They, they sometimes took people, they took people's sheep and they were guiding them. They didn't actually own all of the sheep. And so when one would go missing, that's part of your livelihood, but your task was to bring back everybody. You were hired to bring back everybody. And imagine the shepherd in the story, when he finds out that one is missing, uh, well, what would you do? Everything else is safe. Everybody else is safe. It's, it's kind of alluded to here that the rest of the flock is not going anywhere. It's like there's wolves around or there's anybody that's going to take them away. So what do you do? You go after it. You go after it. Uh, have you... Just to kind of put this in our context, have you ever had a pet go missing? This is one of the most expensive pet missing uh, ventures. This was somewhere in, I think, Great Britain. This poor little puppy. I don't know what happened. It's kind of, kind of sad. But have you ever had a pet go missing that you would search for? Even this morning, I saw on Facebook, somebody lost a cat right downtown on Bridge Street is looking for it. Like, it happens a lot. And people, your heart's broken. You search everywhere. You look around. I remember when I was a kid, um, we had hamsters. Anybody else have hamsters growing up or in your, yeah. What, what are, hamsters are notorious for what? Escaping. And they end up in like the craziest places. So this one little hamster that we had, I think, so get this, his name was Hannibal. 
We named him Hannibal. We didn't know what Hannibal was, I don't think. I was like eight or something. So um, anyway, so this, this little hamster, Hannibal, got out, and he was like crawling around, I think, for like a day. And we're like looking everywhere. Sometimes they ended up in like the hot water heater because they're nice and warm. Um, and we'd find them there, but we couldn't find them. So my brother and I had a tent set up downstairs, and we had some of our toys inside. Well, lo and behold, the next morning, uh, we wake up, and we find our little beloved hamster. I think we have a... a picture. This isn't actually him. He was in the little toy truck in the driver's seat with his whole stash of sunflower seeds in the passenger seat. And um, we were so happy to find him. You know, of course, you know, oh my gosh, we're so, we celebrate, you know, it's such, such a great thing. Um, but, but, but think about that. If you had a pet, a beloved pet, if you had something, somebody important in your life who went missing, what would you do? Wouldn't you put everything on pause to find it? But the others, the others though, some of us would do that. We put everything on pause, but others of us might do the math and we would say, well, if we had 100 sheep, right? One out of 199% cut your losses, right? And just would neglect it. But the question is, what would you do? What would you do? And Jesus answers that question though. The shepherd, the shepherd would leave the 99 to seek out the lost one would leave the 99 and then would bring it back and not only bring it back, but tell everybody about it and throw a big party. That there'd be more rejoicing in heaven over one who is restored than the 99 who are safe in the fold. This is, is, is getting here. He's kind of prying into the Pharisees' hearts for a couple of minutes. But then he goes on immediately into a second story, the parable of the woman and the lost coin. And he says this, or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. I've found my lost coin in the same way. I tell you, there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. If you've had a kid who you know, maybe dropped a couple pennies, you, know, you see pennies and some money in the parking lot, like most of us consider it's not a big deal, right? But what happens when you drop your credit card? Mm, right? That's, you're going to look everywhere for that baby. You're going to tear apart the car. You're going to go in the living room. You're going to backtrack, think, where was I? Where could I have left this? Um, I was working on this sermon before I left for vacation, and it was kind of funny because last week I had a, ch a chance to um, go downtown Charleston, and I, I borrowed my brother's car to do so. And um, I don't know if we have anybody here that sometimes you park your car and you kind of forget where it was. Um, the good news is that I learned that on your phone, there's that little pin operation. If you have a smartphone, you can kind of put where your car is and then, and then walk back. But I did that a little bit too late. And I was exploring downtown. And I was like, oh, the meter is going to like be up soon. So I was like walking back. And I'm like, oh, crap, I forgot where my car is. Walked around for like an extra like 45 minutes. And I'm thinking, well, not only is that my transportation, but this isn't even in my car. It's valuable, right? What am I going to do? But think about that. That's kind of the tenor that Jesus is, of scripture that Jesus is going after here. You know, wouldn't you go look for it? Wouldn't you tear apart everything? The situation here is similar to the last story. There are many of us that would do anything to find it, but there are also those who would ignore, right? To say, well, I just give up already. 
just move on. But Jesus says that this woman in the story searched. Again, she go, it goes on and says that there was a huge party, a huge party when she found what was lost and therefore a huge, much rejoicing in God over what had been found. And then Jesus goes on to tell a third story in the mix that we're not going to talk about today. The story you may have heard of the prodigal son. He goes there. We're not going to share that today. But I think after these first two stories, and especially the third, the people around Jesus, the Pharisees, the disciples, the followers, the crowds, they were, they were wondering, they were left wondering, which of us is who, right? Which of us is the sinner, the lost thing, and which is the righteous? Who is the 99 and who is the one? In two simple stories, Jesus does these things. First talking about those relationships in the first story with the sheep, but then talking about the things of value in the second story, both characterizing people as that. But Jesus does two things. And the first thing he does in these stories is he exposes the Pharisees. On the one hand, the story casts them as the righteous people who are doing what God wants them to do. But he also exposes that they don't get it. They, they want Jesus to hang out with, with them. They, they, but they, they don't get it. They refuse to get on board with a God who is after lost people. A God who has a heart for people who are not following him. The, the ones who God just loves and his heart breaks over and he's going to run after. And, and he tells people, he tells the, the people around him that that is a very, very important thing. And what he exposes in the Pharisees is just loving God doesn't cut it, guys. What about the people around you? He exposes their hypocrisy. And so I think in, this story, in these stories, Jesus is telling broken people who feel lost that you're one of the ones who God loves the most. And maybe there's somebody that here that needs to hear that. Somebody that feels broken or too far away from God. Maybe you doubt too much. Maybe you sin too much. Maybe you think, God can't deal with my messes. But Jesus says, you're someone that God really cares about to the point that he'll leave the rest and he'll run in your direction. But at the same time that he exposes the Pharisees, that group of people around him, he's warning his followers too. He warns his followers. This is a lesson not just for the Pharisees, but for the disciples, uh, those who are around him. And it's kind of a growth spurt, I think, an opportunity for them. What does this mean for us who desire to follow Jesus. Well, I think the first thing is we need to be careful we don't get too found. We need to be careful we don't get too found. And to kind of illustrate that, I want to share with you a, a kind of modern day parable that um, there's like a little video that goes with. I was just going to play the video for you, but um, the guy's like Scottish and it's kind of hard to understand. So I'm going to do like a voiceover with the script here. And this is a parable that... Um, Ironically, it was originally written in 1953, 1953 by an Episcopal priest, Theodore Weddell, um, around the same year that this church was built, ironically. And this is a parable uh, called the Parable of the Life-Saving sta Station. Parable of the Life-Saving Station. If you want to go ahead and play that, Albert.
On a dangerous seacoast where shipwrecks often occur, there was once a crude little life-saving station. The building was just a hut, and there was only one boat, but the few devoted members kept a constant watch over the sea with no thought for themselves and went out day and night tirelessly searching for the lost. Some of those who were saved and various others in the surrounding area wanted to be associated with the station and wound up giving their time and money and efforts for the support of its work. New boats were bought and new crews were trained. The little life-saving station grew. And some of the members of the life-saving station, though, were unhappy that the building was so crude and poorly equipped, and so they felt they wanted a more comfortable place. And so they replaced the emergency cots with beds and put furniture in the large building. And now the life-saving station became a popular gathering place for its members. And they decorated it beautifully because they used it as sort of a club. Fewer members were now interested in going to sea on life-saving missions, so they hired a lifeboat crew to do this work for them. The life-saving motif still prevailed in the club's decorations, and there was a liturgical lifeboat, symbolic rather than fully functional, in the room where the club's initiations were held. And about this time, a large ship wrecked off the coast, and the hired crews brought in loads of cold and wet and half-drowned people. They were dirty and sick, and some had skin of a different color, spoke a different language, and the club was in chaos. So they decided they would build a shower house outside the club where victims of shipwrecks could be cleaned up before coming inside. But at the next meeting, there was a split among the membership. Some of the members wanted to stop the club's life-saving activities. They were unpleasant and a hindrance to the social club of the life. And so some members insisted upon life-saving as their primary purpose and pointed they were still a life-saving station, but they're finally voted down and told that they want to save lives of all the various kinds of people who were shipwrecked in those waters. They could begin their own life-saving station, and so they did. As the years went by, the new station experienced the same changes that occurred in the old. It evolved in a club, and yet another life-saving station was founded. History continued to repeat itself, and if you visit that seacoast today, you'll find a number of exclusive clubs along that shore. And so people, time after time, saw those things. But shipwrecks are frequent in those waters, but most of the people drown. Interesting. Parable of the life-saving station. That unfortunately echoes sometimes the life of churches. Churches that were once set on mission that lose the mission that they were about in the first place. We need to be careful we don't get too found. William Temple, author, pastor, uh, once said this, the church is the only society that exists for the benefit of those who are not its members. See, Jesus was preparing his followers for what was to come. He was preparing them for the mission that he would be sending on them that would be the founding part of what the early church would be. And so how easy it is, though, for churches and people to go from being the people who needed it the most to becoming the people who are most resistant to caring about other people. The first warning is to be careful, that we don't lose the original mission that we're sent on. But then the second piece is that if we do find ourselves getting too too found, 
we need to get lost. And I don't mean not come back to Table Life Church. Let me just see that. Please, please come back. Don't leave. But in other words, begin to orient ourselves to people who are not here, who are not here yet, I would say. And there's no better thing than gathering with maybe new people. Maybe there's some faces even in our midst here that you don't know, and maybe it takes a risk to go and introduce yourself and maybe invite them over or go to lunch. And I would dare to say this, that if you find that you know everybody and you know everybody around you, maybe you're even in a table group right now, or you've been a part of a group or a ministry here. Maybe, maybe you have an idea that you'd like to lead something new that would connect with people even beyond that. But even better yet, I would dare you to sit down and listen, listen, don't speak, but listen to your coworkers, to your friends, to people around you, maybe neighbors who aren't Christians, who aren't sure of this God, to listen to their story and to ask yourself, am I a part of contributing to the stereotypes that they have? See, I think the third part is the most important. It's not enough just to love God. The point of the whole exercise, the stories, is not is to point out that it's important to love God, but that's not where it ends. You have to love the people who God loves people that may look different than you, maybe grew up in a different setting than you did, maybe have a different perspective or a political party or a story. See, the story ultimately leaves the followers having to decide for themselves. Do we only love God and put up with people? Or do we love God and love people? Jesus says to the Pharisees, it's not enough to do just the right things but to love the people who God loves. And the question to you is, will you come and join the party? Will you join the party? Because in the end, I personally have a fundamental belief that life with Christ is better than life without. And, and Christ gives us meaning and purpose and clarity and direction that he works through us and in us. And I've seen amazing things, supernatural things happen in people's lives. And for that reason, I have a fundamental passion to see people connected to him. And the truth is, we need to be a church that believes that same thing. That who we are, our mission here at Table Life Church is to learn the way of Christ and, and to invite others to his table. And yes, that may be Sunday morning, but it may be a relationship with you. Life on life relationship. Not to judge and condemn people, but to invite and connect. And why? The simple answer I think that the stories point out is this, because we care about others because it's what God cares about. It's what God cares about. And I want you to remember this, that even looking at all these stories, there is only one category of person in the entire world. And you know what that is? Lost. We all were. We all find ourselves there. We all have been lost at sea, and when you were lost, somebody else cared enough to think about you, to invite you, to chase you, to pray for you, to talk to you, and to make a place for you at the table. So the question is, will you come, and will you enjoy the party? Thanks be to God. <laughs>